Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Curiosity.com. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you'll learn about an audio illusion that demonstrates the tight links between language and music and a surprising high-tech use for tree rings with Cornell professor Sturt Manning. Let's satisfy some curiosity. There's obviously a difference between speaking and singing, but on a basic level, they're the same thing. Words coming out of people's mouths. And there's an audio illusion that shows just how closely related they really are. But first, what is the difference between speaking and singing? Well, we speak at an inconsistent speed and change volume and intonation to convey emphasis or emotion. But with singing, pitch changes more gradually, but across a greater range, and the rhythm is generally regulated. Given these characteristic differences, scientists assumed the brain used separate neural pathways to process speech and song. But a professor at UC San Diego discovered, accidentally, that this is not the case. Back in 1995, Professor Diana Deutsch was putting the finishing touches on a CD she'd narrated. To make sure she hadn't misspoke, she listened to sections of the CD on a loop. We're going to play a clip of that so you can hear what it sounded like. And remember, this is on a loop, so no, your podcast app is not broken. This is not an editing mistake. Just hang with us for the next 30 seconds or so. Trust me. Here it is. The sounds as they appear to you are not only different from those that are really present, but they sometimes behave so strangely as to seem quite impossible. But they sometimes behave so strangely. They sometimes behave so strangely. 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 So strangely. So strangely. So strangely. So strangely. Did you start to hear sometimes behave so strangely as a little song? That's what happened to Professor Deutsch, too. While the phrase looped, she began working on something else and suddenly realized that the phrase now sounded like singing rather than speaking. But nothing had changed. Deutsch calls this the speech-to-song illusion. She explains that a big difference between speech and song is repetition. You rarely repeat yourself in a verbal conversation, and when you recall what was said, you remember the gist of it rather than the exact words. But you don't summarize a song when you remember it, you can recall its specific words and sound patterns. A song's repetitive structure helps make these distinct elements more memorable. The rhythm of the phrase on Dr. Deutsch's CD kind of sounds like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, and the pitch pattern resembles the Westminster chimes, you know, bum, 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 bum. So when you hear the phrase looped, your brain recognizes the familiar rhythm and tune and processes it as song. You don't need musical training or talent for the illusion to work. A fifth-grade teacher in Wisconsin played the same clip to his class who had never met Deutsch or heard her CD. And the kids began singing the phrase along with the recording. That clip of the fifth-graders, which you can find in the show notes, is from 2009. If the students listened to the phrase again today, they'd likely still hear the tune. Deutsch says that this illusion produces a change in your brain that happens in a flash, but can last weeks, months, and even years. 
This shows just how tightly song and speech are intertwined. The human brain can sometimes behave so strangely. Scientists are always trying to figure out how old stuff is so they can create an accurate timeline of history. Things like when humans arrived in North America, when Babylonian and Syrian rulers reigned, and when Europeans first made contact with Native Americans. Well, today's guest and scientists like him have changed everything we knew about when those events took place. And how did they do it? Two things, radiocarbon dating and tree rings. Sounds like a weird combination, but you're about to learn why they're a match made in heaven. Sturt Manning is a distinguished professor of arts and sciences in classical archaeology at Cornell University, and he specializes in dendrochronology and radiocarbon dating and analysis. So we asked him, how does a dating method that's so high-tech combine with something so low-tech? You can tell me when I give you too much detail, but the answer is very closely. So radiocarbon dating was invented, it was one of these byproducts actually of the World War II science program really. It was appreciated that if you had a you know, piece of carbon, in fact there's three different isotopes of carbon, there's carbon-12 and carbon-13 which is stable and that actually describes 99.99% of all carbon on earth and there's a tiny little bit which is carbon-14 which is not stable. So if you could actually hold a lump of carbon in your hand after five and a half thousand odd years, about 1% of it would actually vanish. And hence it's called a radioisotope. It doesn't mean it's dangerous, it just means it's not stable. So it was thought all you have to do, of course, is measure how much carbon-14 is left in, in, a, in a piece of organic material and you can figure out the age. This seemed really clever. The man who discovered and invented this technique called Libby um, won a Nobel Prize. However, by the time we got to the uh, mid-1960s, problems were becoming evident. And what it turned out was that the amount of radiocarbon was not static as he thought it was, and production varied according to other processes, what the sun was doing, what the Earth's geomagnetic field was doing. So you had to have a record of the past radiocarbon levels in the atmosphere to be able to use it as a dating technique. So how would you find those out? And the brilliant idea occurred to people from basically the, during the period in the 50s, 60s, 70s, tree ring dating could do this. People had been working since the beginning of the 20th century on tree ring dating, particularly in the American Southwest, and in Europe it took off in a big way really only in the 1960s and onwards. If you could build a long tree ring record, like oaks in Central Europe from modern day back to medieval times, then using Roman remains, then looking at prehistoric remains, and things that had been buried in environmental contexts, right now we can go back about 14,000 years continuously with an oak tree ring record, for example, in Central Europe, so particularly Southern Germany. So if you then measure the radiocarbon in each of those tree rings, you have an exact record for what was happening in that particular year. So tree rings have become the basis of doing accurate radiocarbon dating since basically the end of the 1960s. A lot of work went on in the 1970s, 80s, 90s, and ever since to try and get a better and better radiocarbon um, record that we can use to date, not just for archaeology, much though I think archaeology is very important, but all sorts of environmental and climate sciences rely on radiocarbon dating to give them the time scale that they're, they're analyzing things against. So tree rings are that accurate, that they are really just year by year, and we can date it to the exact year? It does depend on what species, but 
for a lot of trees, and you know, classic ones are well, just about every you know every conifer that you look at. So pine trees, cedar trees, juniper trees, all deciduous oaks. So you know, classic white oak and things and red oak that you get, and many other hundreds of species. They lay down exactly one tree ring per year. So they start growing basically at the beginning of the spring, and they then grow through to the end of the summer, and usually just into the beginning of the fall. Then they stop growing, and that cycle in which you're having growth and not growth becomes one increment of growth, and that's a tree ring. And you can recognise that visually in many species and under a microscope, you know, very clearly. There are trees that don't do this properly. So olive trees are a classic one. Although olives can be very old, and although they're often found in ancient places, olive trees do not produce visible annual rings that are easy to use. And various tropical species don't really produce visible annual rings that are easy to use. But in the temperate regions, especially, lots and lots of different trees do. This has been long recognised. I mean, there's a passage in Leonardo da Vinci's writings where he clearly talks about the fact that he can see these different tree rings, and he observes that it would seem that they reflect something to do with climate. And that when it's drier, they're smaller, and those in the south of Italy are not as wide as those in the north of Italy, and so on. So it's been a well-observed fact for many years. But really, it was only in the 20th century people systematically started investigating this, and realised that you could match together the patterns of growth in trees over hundreds and then thousands of years. And by doing that many, many times, so you don't just rely on one tree. You're going to study dozens and really then hundreds of trees, and you find the common pattern that matches in, in nearly all of them. And that allows you to work out the odd problem because every tree is an individual, so there's always the odd one that doesn't quite seem to do what it's meant to do for various reasons. You can match that all together, and that gives you an incredibly robust record that literally is exact to the year. And even then, within that tree ring, the beginning of spring growth, which is recognisable, we call it the early wood, tells you about the earlier part of the growth season, and the late wood that tells you about the summer. So, if you find a medieval building which, for example, does not have complete late wood in its last ring, but then there is bark. You know that that wood was cut down in the spring of that year. If the whole ring is there, you know it was cut down after the end of growth. So it's probably cut down at least in probably September or October, and that was often the case. And then the wood was left to to dry over the winter and was probably used the following spring in building. Wow! Not only can you figure out the exact year the wood was cut down with this method, you can figure out the season. Pretty impressive stuff. Again, that was Sturt Manning, a distinguished professor of arts and sciences in classical archaeology at Cornell University. You can find a link to more from Dr. Manning in the show notes. All right. Well, let's do a quick recap of what we learned today. We learned that the speech to song illusion happens when a repeated word or phrase starts to sound like singing rather than speaking, and this demonstrates a big difference between singing and speaking. With speaking, it rarely involves repeating yourself. And you tend to generally remember what a person was saying, not the specific words, but you do remember specific words and phrases when you remember a song, because of its easy to remember repetitive structure. Has this ever happened to you when you're editing audio, Cody? <laughs> oh boy, not when I'm editing audio, but there are certain phrases, and when I hear them, I immediately translate them into song. Like if you get caught in the rain somewhere, then you are caught in the rain, wasting my time on the ground. No one remembers that song, but it was huge in 2003. It really, it's really too bad when your like ingrained references are to things that nobody knows about. Like, I really loved the movie L.A. Story as a kid, and I have all these quotes from it. Like, if I've been running and I'm hot, I'll say, I'm hot from running now. 
And like, no, it's hilarious to me. Nobody gets it. Nobody gets it. <laughs> We've all been there. Mm -hmm. We also learned that researchers can tell how old certain things are by looking at carbon. Almost all carbon on Earth is carbon-12 and carbon-13, which are stable. But carbon-14 is not stable. It breaks down over time. So measuring how much has broken down over time can tell us how old something is. And measuring the carbon in tree rings can help us figure out the age of a lot of different things. Tons of trees lay down one ring every year. So researchers can date things very accurately from those trees, even down to the specific year. We can learn about our climate from looking at the state of rings from lots and lots of trees from history. And this isn't new. Even Leonardo da Vinci observed this might be possible more than 500 years ago. I think everybody has had the experience of like seeing a tree stump and counting the rings to see how old the tree was. And the idea that scientists still use that today, even when they have all these like high tech methods. Very cool. I just think it's amazing. Sometimes you just got to go back to basics. Yeah. The writer for today's first story was Steffi Drucker. Our managing editor is Ashley Hammer, who is also an audio editor on today's episode. Our producer and lead audio editor is Cody Goff. Join us again tomorrow to learn something new. 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 Dabu di dabu dai. In just a few minutes. And until then, stay curious. <laughs>